the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Today's a special weekend. As you know, it's Memorial Day, and I'd like to especially acknowledge today those of you who have friends and family that have lost someone who made the ultimate sacrifice. And I think it's important on, on, at times like this, we need to remember that all of us owe our freedom, the chance for us to even be here at all, to, to have any kind of a voice at all in our country because of the people who paid this price. And, and, and as Christians, we owe an even way bigger debt, unspeakably bigger debt to Jesus and the sacrifice and the victory that he did. But it's, it's important to remember, and at times like these, when we remember the, these kind of things, I think it's a really good thing too to remember this is one more place where we see God's footprints, God's fingerprints in the world. We see his hand at work. And here's why. Uh, why is it noble to sacrifice for someone else if the world is just a random bunch of accidents and the, the, the way that anything good happens is by survival of the fittest? Why is it that almost every culture, no matter whether they believe in God or an alternative God or no God or whatever, they understand that it's a good thing. Deep down in our hearts and our souls, we know it's a good thing. It's a noble thing for someone to give their life for someone else. It's because we're made in the image of God. And no matter how broken and how twisted that image can be, way down deep on the deepest, deepest levels, there's something inside all of us that still know we were made in His image, male and female. We were designed to mirror our Creator. And so when we acknowledge that someone did something horrific and crazy and see that it was noble and good, that's one more way that we can see God at work in the world. I shared a couple weeks ago, and I just want to very briefly say this one more time. I love the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you've never seen it, you should if you're an American. And I, I think it's a really important thing. At the end of it, uh, one of the characters tells the guy that they saved to earn this. And both characters knew in that moment that they were, there was no way they could earn it. There was no way that he could live a life that was worth all the sacrifices that had man made. But they also knew, both of them at this time, and I'm saying this again, I hope you hear it, hope you live it. What they were really saying was this, don't waste the gift you've been given. Don't disrespect the sacrifice that has been made by just frittering it away. And that's exactly how we need to remember Jesus. When, and I hope that's how we did it. I think I, I know I did. I hope all of you did this morning. That's how we need to remember those of us, whatever country we live in, for all of us, that's America. And that's how we need to honor the people who died for us to live freely here. But more than anything, we need to remember we've got to use the life, the gifts we've been given well. If only Israel had lived that way. Today we wrap up the series on um, the book of Judges called No More Kings. We've been remembering this idea that we have one king, one God, not a whole bunch of them. They did not live that way. Uh, we looked at a whole bunch of stories. In, uh, this morning we're going to start by just kind of rewinding for a second, looking at one story we skipped in the middle and then wrapping up the book. Back in Judges chapter 8, the story of Gideon wraps up, and it, rips up, it wraps up in a sad way. Uh, Billy did a great job of sharing this the other day, but at the end of Gideon's life, which most of it was good, 
instead of becoming the ruler that he was supposed to become, he instead uh, made basically an idol. It was, it was kind of a counterfeit ephod, the chess piece that they would wear and kind of talk to God by pulling these little kind of almost like dice out and they'd roll those and ask God questions. Well, he made a counterfeit version of that and that became an idol for the people. And then he married a whole bunch of women, had 70 sons, and then he took a concubine, which is basically a legal, socially, at that time, accepted sex slave. Don't want to varnish it for you. It's just, it's not okay. And he kept her in another little town called Shechem. And she had one kid. His name was Abimelech. Well, chapter 9 starts, you see that Abimelech grows up and he ends up killing off all of his brothers and manipulating the situation so he gets to be the next leader. But notice that this pattern is not happening. This, this pattern throughout Judges, it's already dark, doesn't even happen here. The pattern is that they are following God, then they turn away from God, they follow idols, and God abandons them for a while and says, fine, let's see how those idols protect you. And then they come back to God and God gives them a leader to rescue them and they come back to God and celebrate that. That doesn't happen here. Nobody repents. God doesn't raise up Abimelech. This is all just part of the same crazy nonsense. And the whole thing is legal. The whole thing is accepted. The whole thing, for three years at least, this is okay. This is how we are in Israel today. This is just what it is. This is, this is okay. Eventually, God shuts it down. And here's where we start today, where this really starts to apply to us today. And as we wrap up that not only this, these stories today, but this entire series, I hope that this resonates with you as deeply as it resonates with me. First thing we need to say out loud together, if you would, four words, no more mob morality. By mob morality, I mean that if everybody else seems to be believing it at the time, it's got to be true. How many know that that is not true? But how many, how many get sucked into it anyway? Sometimes. I'm raising my hand. Sometimes. But here's the truth. Popular opinion has nothing to do with what is actually truly right or wrong. Or true or false. Getting a whole bunch of people to believe something doesn't make it any truer than it would be otherwise. Uh, to get a lot of people to disbelieve something doesn't make it false. It just means that's what everybody believes right now. That's all it means. Making something legal, making something illegal, it doesn't alter reality. It doesn't change God's perspective on the situation. It doesn't uh, alter the consequences, the natural consequences built into us or the consequences God himself has promised for certain good or bad behaviors. Us all agreeing on something and agreeing to change something for the good or the bad doesn't actually change what's real. We've got to remember that as we walk through life. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. This is a passage we've come to several times throughout this series. We're going to look at a lot of it this morning. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, says, But God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God 
or even give him thanks. And as they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, as a result, their minds became dark and confused. This isn't Paul being judgmental. This isn't him being arrogant. He's just telling the truth. This is what happens. All of us are vulnerable to this. All of us are made ideally in the image of God, but the second that we stop worshiping Him as the Creator, as our ultimate King, our ultimate and one and only God, the second we back away, we're all vulnerable for this slippery slide. We're all vulnerable to drift into these other things that popular opinion may tell us is okay, but God never will. But at the same time, just a few verses earlier, here Paul says this, and this is the good news for all of us. He says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. And as the Scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Some translations say it more like the righteous shall live by faith. But no matter how you say it in English, here's the truth that's always consistent throughout Scripture. To God, faith means trusting Him enough that you actually obey Him. That's what faith looks like in the Scriptures every single time. But that brings us already, somebody's going, what, we're already point number two? Look at us go. No more religion. Before you say that with me out loud, I want to explain what I mean by that. There's nothing innately wrong with having certain traditions or certain ceremonies or certain kinds of prayers or certain kinds of rhythms or your family really likes this holiday or that holiday or on birthdays you do this. There's nothing innately wrong with that. Here's the problem. Religious people talk to God, but they don't talk with God. They find comfort in rules and traditions, but they don't interact with a living personal deity. They don't actually connect with God. The stuff that they do, religion, when we say no more religion, what we're saying is no more relying on the things that we made up more than the things that God made up. That's where it gets dangerous. Religious people redefine faith from trusting God, the one and only true God, the one and only true Creator, the one and only King. Instead of trusting Him, that's what faith means. Instead of that, religious people say that your faith is whatever you choose to believe. You're a person of faith as long as you do what you say you believe. That's not God's definition. And it doesn't work. Let's say those three words together. No more religion. Well, at this point in history, now we're heading to the end of the book of Judges. We're going to wrap this up today. We're going to start in 17. We're going to kind of fast forward through. But now we've gotten to a spot where even that crazy broken cycle is just gone. It came back for a little bit. We had Jephthah and Samson and a couple other people. And now, now it's just gone. Now there's all these religious people. There's traces of this and that and this and that from God. But they're just making it up as they go along. It's all personal opinion and and popular opinion, and that's it. It's craziness. Let's start here with verse 1 of chapter 17. There was a man named Micah who lived in a hill country of Ephraim. One day he said to his mother, I heard you place a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. Well, I have the money. I was the one who took it. The Lord bless you for admitting it, his mother replied. Already see how we're 
dipping our toes in some crazy, crazy waters here. Just keep watching. He returned the money to her and she said, I now dedicate these silver coins to the Lord. In honor of my son, I will have an image carved in an idol cast. You know God like that. Way to go, Micah's mom. Woot! That's what I like. Micah set up a shrine for the idol and he made a sacred ephod and some household idols. And then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. What's his son know that he doesn't know? What connection does he have to God through this idol? It's, it's, it's nonsense. Are you, do you see that? And I'd like you to actually say these words that are kind of purple today. Say these out loud with me. This, is, this theme has kind of gone through the whole book, but in these last couple chapters, it, almost, it says this verbatim several different times. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And again, whatever we see right in our, our own eyes really has nothing to do with what's actually right or wrong. If we're lucky, it agrees with what God says is right or wrong. If we went to him first and that's where we got the idea, cool. But just because it's right in our eyes doesn't really mean anything. Well, it gets even crazier. Now here comes a Levite. And the Levites weren't supposed to be wandering around. There's two Levites in this story that do. Uh, they were supposed to be serving at the temple. But there's a Levite wandering around. And as he walks by and he sees this little makeshift tabernacle and uh, Micah and his sons and everybody kind of quote unquote worshiping God uh, around this idol, they, they realize he's a Levite and they hire him and he takes over being the new priest. And Micah says, now God will bless me because I've got a Levite serving as my priest. They're supposed to be the priest. That's not how it works. Then some people from the tribe of Dan come through. They're trying to find a new place to live. And they come through and they see this makeshift tabernacle and all that nonsense. And they go, hey, that looks really great. Let's go talk to that guy, see if he'll pray for us. And the Levite says, God's blessing is on you. You're going to be great. Whatever you're going to do next, God's going to bless it. Do you think he really heard from God? Nope. Now, I, this, is, this is dark. This one's this is hard. I got, but, but, but I got I to gotta, I gotta laugh a little bit. And as I was going through this, I, I went through it. I, I was reminded of one of the most nonsensical comics that I've ever heard. I, I, but I loved him. It was Jack Handy. Does anybody remember Jack Handy? Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. Every one of his jokes sounds like it's going to be this beautiful motivational poster and then it derails halfway through. Here's one of them. I can picture in my mind a world without war, a world without hate, and I can picture us attacking that world because they'd never expect it. <laughs> and that's hilarious because you're like, what? That's not how it works. You can't do that. But that's, that's how these people are thinking. In fact, that's exactly how they were thinking. Here's what they did. With the blessing of the Levite, they go down and they find this place called Laish that's peaceful and prosperous. They don't even have ways to defend themselves. And they go, ha this is great. They go home, they get an army together on their way back to attack Laish. They wipe out Micah and they destroy everything he's got. They take his Levite, take his idol, take everything. They head down, they destroy Laish and they rebuild it and rename it Dan. And now that's their new place. And here's where it ends. Then they set up that carved image. And they appointed Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, as their priest. Not that Moses. This is another guy named Moses. This family continued as priests. Listen. This family continued as priests for the tribe of Dan until the exile. 
This craziness lasted throughout the entire period of Israel's greatest greatness. This craziness outlasted that. The whole time Saul and David and all the two broken kingdoms and all of the prophets and all of that's going on. All the times when they would restore Israel and get rid of almost all the idols but except for just a couple. This one stayed. That makes me mad. That makes me furious. I'm telling you right now because it reminds me of all the lies that I've believed in my life and all the lies of people I love believe. And sometimes they're, it's, they're so ridiculous to everybody else. The ones that other people believe, I, I, I see how ridiculous they are, but they don't. And yet they stick better than the truth. The idols that they're following sticks better than God. I don't get it. Micah's carved image was worshipped by the tribe of Dan as long as the tabernacle of God remained at Shiloh. Then it gets even worse. Here comes this other traveling Levite. And this guy's got a concubine. I already told you what that means. He's not kind to her. She runs away from him. He waits four months and then goes back to get her. And instead of getting her, trying to apologize or marry her, or any possible good thing, instead he has this huge like, week-long party with her dad. Her dad's fine with the whole arrangement. Then he takes her home, and on the way back, they, they try to get shelter at this place called Gibeah in the Benjamites' territory. And now this, uh, there's a horrific recreation of the scene in Genesis 19, where the two angels went to Lot for shelter. And all the men in this city, tried to, 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 they asked that he'd send them out so that they could rape them. I'm not making this up. This isn't the Bible, or I wouldn't even bring this up. Thankfully, in that story, what Lot offered them didn't happen. The people turned it down. But I don't know if you remember that. He offered his daughters instead. He said, that would not be okay, but I can send you my two daughters. Can you imagine? I, I just don't get that. I don't care what culture it is. I don't care what popular opinion had accepted at that moment. But the, What? But this time, it happens again, and this time they take him up on it. They send the concubine out, and they gang rape her to death. And in the morning, they walk out. They've slept through the whole thing. The Levite and the old man that they're staying for, they just sleep through it. They don't even, they don't even care. They don't even know. And in the morning, they walk out the door, and there she is laying on the doorstep, reaching for the door. What ticks me off so much is not just what they let, what happened. That ticks me off. But they did nothing and they let it happen. And the reason it ticks me off is because that reminds me of myself and so many Christians. I don't know anybody that's as wicked as the people that killed her. But how many times have we slept through stuff? How many times have we seen how unjust and how broken stuff is? We don't do anything about it. I'm sorry. Well, Israel unites over this thing temporarily. For the first time, they go back where the actual tabernacle is. They don't really pray. They kind of pretend. They don't do anything to the Levite or the old man. 
But they do decide that Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, needs punished. So they go after Benjamin, and they lose 40,000 people because God's not in it. So they, for the first time in forever, they go back, and this time they really actually talk to God. They actually talk to the real priests. They actually have the real ephod and the urim and the thummim, and they actually fast and pray and offer sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings. And this time they follow the plan that God has, and they're successful. They wipe out everybody except just 600 Benjamites. But then it just derails even further, and there's just they give they they let them steal their daughters. It's just, it's just so crazy. But here's the truth. This is where it really matters to us today. This is why these stories, as crazy nuts as they seem, why they still matter so much today. This is what happens when we follow idols. This is what happens to all of us when we turn away from the one true God, from the one true King. This is not some ridiculously, innately evil people doing just things that could never happen anywhere else. We're not being anti-Semitic by telling these stories. This is what happens when people turn away from God and we're all vulnerable to all of these things and we're all guilty of some of them. And that's why this is so relevant. Can you say these three words with me? No more idolatry. Say it, say it, mean it. No more idolatry. When we refuse to worship God as our one true God and King, we automatically, all of us, we descend from foolishness and confusion down into complete chaos on every level of our lives. And if we don't repent, the same pattern that we see over and over in Judges happens again. He, he backs off. He abandons us for a while and he says, fine, let's see how that works out for you. Worship that God instead. Believe that lie instead. Go for it. See what happens. And then we become enslaved and conquered and oppressed by those lies and by those false gods and by those false beliefs. And then hopefully we come back to him. But if we never do, they destroy us. Our only hope is to seek deliverance and to seek the true meaning of life in Jesus Christ himself. And thank God we have access to that. I'd like to read some more from Romans 1. And again, read it up on the screen. This is, I'm just reading straight out of the Bible. These are, this, is, this is just what it says. This is what happens when all of us, all human beings, this is what happens when we deny the image of God in us, when we deny Him as the ultimate creator and ultimate authority, this is what happens. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. 
Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. As a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. And since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, and yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. We're all probably several different spots on all those lists. But we're all on all of those lists. Somewhere. Because whatever part of your heart you don't let God be the king of, even if it's just one little part of your mind, one little part of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, one little part of it that you just keep for you or you give to someone else instead, all of us, this is where it leads. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you might have life, life to the full. All of that is stuff that only Jesus can do for us, and yet the choice as always is up to us. And as we wrap up this morning, I'm about to ask you to make a choice again. I need you to hear this one last passage that kind of wraps this up. It's the goodness of God, the stuff only God can do, but the choice that we have. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have a new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. I think the most dangerous of all of these idols that we've talked about, all these enemies that Israel fought all, the, uh, fought, all the ones that we fight, the most dangerous is this, the majority. Because it's so tempting to want to fit in. It's so easy to just go with the flow. And, and if the flow happens to be right, praise God. That's, it's not wrong in and of itself to do something that people agree on. But we've got to not let that drive the train for us. We've got to make sure that our religion is not something we make up, but that we're constantly balancing and measuring and reimagining everything that we do against the templates that God Himself gives us. 
We've got to make sure we have one king, one God. I don't know what you need to do this morning, whether it needs to be public or, or, or private, but I'm asking you to recommit or make for the first time that commit this morning. The whole idea of baptism represents this. It represents that this pass, it's passage in Romans 6 that I just quoted. It, it talks about that we are united with Christ in his death and in his burial and his resurrection. Baptism symbolizes all of those things. We die to ourselves and we start over. We say, I'm not the king. I'm not the God. Nothing else is. It's just Jesus. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus before. Maybe you've never been baptized. This is your day. Water's warm. There's changes of clothes up there and towels. You don't even have to go home and organize anything. Maybe, maybe you'd like to join the church. I know, I know one person wants to do that. Just in case you know, I know you come from a lot of different backgrounds. We don't enforce that. We don't make you join our church. We try not to pressure people about it. But to us, the only thing it means is that you're just saying, this is my family. This is where I worship. This is where I serve. This is, I'm just plugging in. That, 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 that's all it means. We're not asking you to renounce anybody else or sign a bunch of papers or anything. We just, we just want to know that you officially do that. So it means so much when people do that. Uh, maybe you need prayer. May, I don't know, but I'm asking you whether you choose to come forward or keep it private this morning. Would you make a choice in this direction? Would you do whatever it takes for you this morning to walk out that door knowing that you've either committed for the first time or recommitted? That you have one king, one God. His name is Jesus.